Welcome to Prima's podcast. My name is Shonda Ragland. I manage the education and training programs at the Public Risk Management Association. Today, Brandon Brewer will discuss the Flint water crisis and risk communication. Brandon Brewer has served as an all-hazard public information officer for 25 years. He has deployed worldwide to disasters to communicate health and safety information to affected publics. Brandon has been an on-scene crisis communicator for dozens of large-scale and complex incidents, including the Deepwater Horizon Gulf of Mexico oil spill in 2010, Hurricane Katrina response and recovery operations in Southeast Louisiana, and 9-11 response and recovery operations in New York City. He has also trained thousands of members of the U.S. national response community in crisis, risk, and collaborative communications. Brandon led joint agency teams of federal government communicators to rewrite joint information center model collaborative communications during emergency response for the U.S. national response team. Much of Brandon's risk and crisis communication experience comes from his more than 22 years of active duty service in the U.S. Coast Guard. One highlight of his career was serving two tours of duty with a specialized deployable unit that is mandated to respond to oil spills and hazardous materials released, as well as natural or human-caused disasters around the world. He is now a partner at Sean Douglas Communication in Norfolk, Virginia. We will also be joined by Danica Williams, a member of Prima's education and training team. Danica will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the show. Brandon, how did the public water problem start in Flint, Michigan, and what are the hazards for people? Well, that's a great question, Danica, and it's it's one that requires a, a little bit of history to get people up to speed with what's going on right now. The water problems in Flint actually started about three years ago, almost three years ago. In early 2013, the Flint City Council voted to approve a plan to switch the city's public water supply from Detroit to a system that is still under construction. And they did that as a cost-saving measure for the city. But what this meant was that at one point, the city would have to find another water source before that the supply under construction would be completed. The city signed a contract with this new water authority and Detroit Water informed the city that their service termination date would be April of 2014. So Flint hired an engineer firm to put the city's water plant back into operation, and that would be to use Flint Water as that kind of stopgap between the service uh, from Detroit and the service that they were awaiting with this new system. So the city officially switched to Flint River Water on April 25th, 2014, and they issued a statement to the public that the water met quality standards and, and was safe to drink. However, a few months later, there was a nearly week-long boil advisory after E. coli was detected in the water supply, but the city took action. They flushed the lines, disinfected them. Two weeks after that, there was another boil advisory when coliform bacteria was detected in the supply. Once again, Flint took action. They flushed the lines, and they boosted the chlorine levels again. A third advisory was sent out in January of 2015, and this was to notify residents that the water supply had exceeded federal limits for trihalomethanes, 
And this is a byproduct of disinfectants and it can cause health problems after long term exposure. So this was the, this was the third advisory in a matter of about eight to nine months after switching to Flint River water. So just a week after this uh, third warning was issued to residents, the first elevated lead levels were discovered in Flint water. And this came about from tests of drinking fountain water in two old buildings at a college campus in, in the city. So citizens started to come forward after that, and they were speaking out about their water that was discolored. It didn't smell very good. It didn't taste very good. And a lot of folks started to believe that this was going to impact their health negatively. State and federal public health and environmental quality agencies began looking into the then alleged water problems in Flint in the months that followed. But from an outsider's perspective, and I'll just say me as an outsider, those agencies didn't always seem to be working together or working toward the same goal. And throughout the months that they were looking into the problems, the water supply in Flint remained in the same condition. So in September 2015, there was an independent study that indicated that corrosiveness was causing lead to leach into citizens' water in Flint. And later that month, the city issued a lead advisory for water and, and gave some recommendations for safe use. But the city also maintained that the water was safe according to federal standards. So a week later, a public health emergency was declared and officials from the city and county started telling residents not to drink the water. So there was a lot going on that first year and a half. Flint uh, eventually reconnected to water from Detroit in mid-October of last year, and this was in an effort to solve the problems that were persisting. But we know now that that didn't work, and this was about the time that um, the, the Flint water crisis started um, making national news headlines. So I think a lot of people from that point have a pretty good idea of what's been happening, but in December of last year, the city declared a state of emergency. The county and the state declared a state of emergency uh, in January. And um, a few days later, President Obama signed an emergency declaration for Flint. So now that it's national news and it's uh, consistently in the headlines, I think most people will have a good idea of what's been going on the last few months. Now, what's the current situation for residents of Flint? And what is being done to help them? Well, right now, citizens are dependent on getting water from distribution centers around the, around the city. And they're waiting for this new water supply construction project to be completed, which is estimated to be done this summer. There, initially, um, the city had set up uh, distribution centers at fire departments, but just this week they've opened some new distribution centers. So people have to use bottled water. They have to use water that is just distributed to them. They have to filter the water. But with this, with this new system coming online in the summer, they're hoping that that doesn't last very long. I haven't seen any estimates on how long after construction is complete that the water will actually be flowing from those pipes to reach taps in the city. But I'm sure with such a, a big project that there's um, some significant testing that has to go on before bringing it online for residents. So, Brandon... In your opinion, why did the public water problems in Flint become such big news? Because this has been a national news story for months. 
if I was a reporter, I think that the story in Flint would be more compelling than most other stories uh, happening in, in Michigan or, or happening um, across the country. The reason that the story in, in Flint is so compelling is that it hits on so many of the basic elements of mass appeal when it comes to print journalism and broadcast journalism and what have you. There's suspense. There's the prominence of the people involved. It's the the mayor, the governor, the president. A lot of celebrities have weighed in. Michael Moore has organized protests because Flint's his hometown. Pro athletes, rock bands raise money. You name it. This is constantly in the news. There's conflict. There's many stories are kind of an us versus them depiction of what's happening. It's uh, government agencies against other government agencies or the public versus the government. There's a lot of emotion with this story. There's a lot of consequence with this story, especially from the public health aspect. There's a little bit of oddity in the story, at least for me, because you wouldn't think that a problem this bad would would happen in a, a, a big town in Michigan. Flint's a town of about 100,000 people. So you would think that, you know, they might have problems, you know, with utilities here and there, but you, you would never imagine that it would be something that would would go on for years. And there's also the progress angle of the story. You've got everything seeming to start because of this switch from one water supply to another water supply while signing a contract for eventually switching to this, you know, brand new supply that's coming from Lake Huron. So all these elements of mass appeal, if you if you have one or two of them, your story is going to be a story. It's going to be something that's going to appear in the news. But the more of these you have, the bigger the news is going to be. And for the case of Flint, you know, this was it was new news for a lot of people just because it, it was a, a local story and then it became a, a regional story and then it became a national story. So it's really kind of spiraled out. I was actually in Michigan a few weeks ago, not, not far from Flint. And I was talking to a family friend and, you know, I, I was discussing the, the news coverage and he said, Oh yeah, he kind of, he kind of smiled. He said, you know, people outside of Michigan are just hearing about this in the last few months. But if you live in Michigan, especially in the a region of Flint, then you've been hearing the story for years. We hope you found the information you've heard so far useful. I would like to take a moment and invite you to join us in an upcoming Prima Enterprise Risk Management training session. Prima will host an ERM training session in Albany, New York during the first week of August. Our final 2016 ERM training session will take place in Phoenix, Arizona the last week of November. Here are some words from Prima's ERM faculty member, Tim Wiseman, regarding why risk management professionals should attend Prima's ERM training. Well, I think we find ourselves today in a very complex environment, not only with the global marketplace, but the advancement of technology and communications. Uh, both public and private sector entities and organizations are really wrestling with how to process information about vulnerabilities and risks that are associated with their objectives and goals and strategies. 
so there's sort of a general understanding and realization that some of the older practices in risk management um, may have been adequate at the time, but there's sort of a need to step up the game and take a more holistic approach. And I think that's the door that's opening and has opened for organizations, both public and private sector, to embrace uh, an enterprise-wide risk management approach. To learn more about Prima's ERM training, visit primacentral.org. Now back to Brandon and Danica. In a recent blog post, you wrote about risk perception outrage factors and how this can make a situation like that in Flint volatile for people who have to communicate risk. Can you go over some of those and explain why they make people more outraged? Sure. Um, Yeah, and this is like all those elements of mass appeal, the more of these outrage factors you consider for any given situation, the worse it can be in terms of how upset people are, how afraid people are, how outraged they are. There's a leading risk communication expert named Dr. Peter Sandman, and he developed an equation years ago that applies perfectly to situations like the one in Flint. And that equation is risk equals hazard plus outrage. And people affected directly and indirectly by the Flint water crisis can have elevated levels of fear, anger, outrage, based on some factors that Peter Salmon has identified for either real or perceived risks. And those factors that can make me people more afraid or, or make people more angry include catastrophic effect, the origin of a risk. And, and by that, for Flint, the, the origin of the risk is their tap, you know, their tap water in their home, which most uh, Americans would consider safe without even thinking about it. Another factor is the effects on children, which has been widely reported um, with elevated lead and copper levels. The media attention, of course, is another. Whether or not anybody or whether or not somebody has controllability of a risk. And for the folks in Flint, they don't really have any control over the risk because it's a public utility that they don't have a choice in. They can't switch water utilities in their home. And um there's other factors, you know, and another uh, factor is the distribution of the risk and if it's equitable. And for people in Flint, a lot of the the officials and, and folks in leadership positions who are working on the problem and have been working on the problem for years don't share the risk with the residents. They don't have to drink the water there or bathe in the water there. Well, nobody's doing that now, but they're not affected in the same way. So. Again, like those elements of mass appeal, the more of these factors that that people have to consider about any given risk, the worse it can be for people who need to communicate it because you've got, you know, more and more and more outrage based on all these factors. How could risk managers and people in leadership roles in Michigan have delivered risk information better about the water situation in Flint? From the very beginning of this situation, and remember, this has been going on for years, Risk managers and and other people in leadership roles could have used some tips from other risk communication experts on how to collaborate uh, better with people and how to manage risk perception and how to manage community involvement in a crisis. And again, this is um, from years ago, Doctor, and it's still applicable today. Dr. Vincent Cavello and Frederick Allen created 
the seven cardinal rules of risk communication. And using these could have helped people understand the situation better and also put the focus on what's most important, and that would be public health and mitigating the problem, which is at the forefront now but wasn't always at the forefront. So those seven cardinal rules are accepting and involving the public as a legitimate partner, planning carefully and evaluating efforts, listening to the public's specific concerns, being honest, frank, and open, coordinating and collaborating with credible sources, and this is primarily for communication, meeting the needs of the media, and then the last of those seven is speaking clearly and with compassion. Now, some of these things did happen here and there, but if you look back at the whole history of the crisis, it didn't always appear that officials as a whole did these things with any regularity or consistent empathy for those people who were affected. And many of those folks have been playing catch up since about the the start of this year. Now, Brandon, finally, what are some lessons that risk managers or other public officials may apply to their municipality in order to limit the possibility of something like this reoccurring? Well, I, I hope that um, people who could find themselves in similar situations are paying close attention to everything that's happened in Flint, especially from the communication aspect, the community involvement aspect. There's quite a few learning points, but I think that a big takeaway is that, you know, people have to understand that if people are affected by the work that you do and have, they have to trust you and your institution and believe that you're credible before they'll believe that you're competent. So I spoke to some folks here in Norfolk this week about risk communication, and I couldn't stress enough that empathy goes a long way in both good times and bad. So building trust and credibility is a lot easier before a crisis occurs. But it's also easy to lose if you have it after a crisis starts. People need to know that you care before they care what you know. And officials need to consistently put themselves in the shoes of the people they serve and ask questions like, what would I need to know about situation X to have my concerns met and know that this person or organization cares about me and my loved ones and is competent to handle the situation? So doing empathetic brainstorming before a crisis occurs to both meet the needs of people affected by your work in good times will help you better to meet their needs when you're in a stressful situation like that in Flint. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks so much, Brandon and Danica. Please visit the Prima website to listen to other Prima podcasts, join upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about additional Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have a wonderful day.